Well, as we return to the Gospel of Mark, um, let me again remind you of the three questions driving this book, as I've explained uh, now on multiple occasions. The the Gospel of Mark is driven by three key questions. Uh, Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And remember the third one? How should we respond? See, some of you guys have been here for a little while, so you're starting to catch on, all right? These three key questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And how should he respond? Mark wants us to understand the, the person of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, and to see how we should respond to such a person and such a mission. He wants us to behold the glory of Jesus and to become his followers. And that, too, is why I chose to preach through this book. My my purpose in preaching through the Gospel of Mark is that we would all be captivated by Jesus, and and we would be changed by, by walking with Jesus through the pages of Mark that we would be captivated and changed by spending this time with Jesus as we walk through the Gospel of Mark. My, my prayer, and this has been my prayer each and every week that we've been in this book, is that we would grow in, in our wonder and our worship of Christ, and, and that as we see Christ for who he is, that would change us. As we see Christ for who he is, that would change us. I guess another way that I could put what, what I'm pursuing and preaching this book is, is that I've been praying that our time in this book would really help us battle the, the temptation that I think too many suffer from, and that is the temptation... Of, of what I would call settling for a miniature Christ. Settling for a miniature Christ. A Jesus who is less than the real thing. There, there's a temptation. There's a temptation among too many in the church, and I don't just mean our church, I mean the church as a whole, to minimize the glory and sufficiency of Christ. There's a temptation. Amen? There's a temptation to minimize the glory and sufficiency of Jesus. Too many are settling for a miniature Christ, a, a, a dashboard Jesus. For their hearts. They settle for a small and a tame Jesus. A Christ who is there, but not really big enough to change anything. Not really big enough to change anything. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, oh their, their mini Christ is, is big enough for, for a few hours at church, at the church, on, on Sunday, on the weeks when they make it. He, he's big enough for the few religious conversations they might have. Or, or those few moments they might spend thinking about spiritual things. But what they fail to see is that the true Christ, the real Christ, is grand enough and glorious enough to, to transcend and to permeate every aspect of their life. Not just those few moments on Sunday, not just those few conversations, not just those few spiritual thoughts, but every moment, every moment of their lives, to transcend and to permeate all of their lives. He is the glorious Christ, the glorious Jesus, who can radically change them. Radically change them. But too many settle for something so much less. Now, let's be honest. Most folks wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say, I've got my little dashboard Jesus. I've got my little mini Christ and I'm happy with him that way. That wouldn't be their confession. But when you look at their lives, you see that's the way that they're living. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. And, and maybe as we walk through this, use this as a self-test this morning. A way to help you determine if, if you're settling for a miniature Christ or if your heart is captivated by the real deal, okay? So let me ask you some questions. Let's first talk about uh, our passion, our passion. Here's a question for you. In what do you glory? In what do you glory? In what do you find, what I mean by that is, in what do you find your, your greatest joy, your, your excitement? In, in what do you boast? What do you turn to for satisfaction? What are you passionate about? Your sports teams? Your job, your, that career you're pursuing, your stuff, you know, your home, your car, your, your shoe collection, 
What are you passionate about? Do you find your glory and your satisfaction in your family? Family's a blessing, right? But, but is all of those things what rule you, what you find your joy in, or are all of those things trumped by Jesus? By Jesus. Is Jesus the source of your greatest joy and satisfaction? Or is he just there for, you know, Sundays and occasional conversations about churchy things? And what do you glory? What are you passionate about? Over in Philippians chapter 3, and you don't have to turn there, just listen as I read this. Over in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul writes this. Listen to what he says. But whatever gain I had, so, so all of his religious accomplishments, his career, his heritage, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. And listen to this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because, of, listen to what he says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpass, I count it all as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he continues, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And listen to this. And count them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. And what did Paul glory? What did Paul glory in? Okay, this is pretty obvious, church. Come on, you can talk back. That's all right. He gloried in Christ. Because Paul had the real deal, right? He knew the glory, the wonder, the beauty of Christ. So everything became like garbage in comparison. Now, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying treat your family like garbage. I'm not saying that. But everything else was less. It was a distant second compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. That's what he gloried in. But is that true of us? Let me ask it this way. It's a little more convicting. Is that true of you? When we say us, you know, it's almost like we can, we can hide in that one, right? It's the big, ambiguous group. But thinking about yourself, is that true of you? In what do you find your greatest joy? And what do you find your satisfaction? If it's something other than Christ, maybe that's because you've settled for something less than the real Christ. You haven't been captivated by the real deal. I mean, honestly, I can see how a dashboard Jesus, how, how a miniature Christ might lose out to a sports team, might, might lose out to career, to family. But I don't see how the real deal, the glorious Christ, would lose out to those things. Not when you've seen him for who he truly is. Let, let me give you another example uh, and ask another question. Let's talk, let's talk about our problems. Not going to have a sharing session, but let's talk about our problems. Let me ask you this question. How do you handle difficult situations. How do you handle difficult situations? So let's run through some. The house, you got it out in the market, and it's been on the market for a long time, and you want to move, and it isn't selling. Or the office, the office where you work, the staff is being downsized, and you start to see, hey, I'm, maybe I'm the next guy in line. Uh, the kids, everybody's going back to school, the kids are struggling to adjust to the new school. Or, or you need to go to the doctor, but you keep putting it off. Why? Men, because we're afraid of what they might find, right? So you put it off. So let me ask you a question. How do you handle difficult situations? Do you, do you greet those situations with worry, with anxiety, with fear, with frustration? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he was betrayed? This is from John 14. When Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says to them this, let not your hearts be, what? Remember what he said? Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, he says. Believe also in me. Why did Jesus say that? Did he just want to make the guys feel better? I'm just going to tell them whatever they need to hear right now so they'll feel better. You know? It's not really true, but hey, it'll help them feel better. Is that why he said that? Is that the way Jesus works? No, not at all. He said that because he and the Father had everything in hand. Amen? They had everything in hand. And think about this. Although Jesus was just hours away from his betrayal, just hours away from sufferings and from beatings, hours away from the cross, he still had everything in hand. None of that was a surprise, was it? And none of it was beyond the Father's control. None of it was out of the hands of Jesus. It was all according to the sovereign plan of God. And guess what else? Jesus still has all things in hand. Amen? And he still says to us what? Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. But here's the question. Do we? Do we? Do we truly rest? You know what I'm talking about? Not just, uh, I hope Jesus can work this out. But do we truly rest in him? Because we've seen him for who he is. He's the sovereign king who walks on the water, who commands the wind and the waves, who raises the dead, who defeats sin and death, who works all things together for our, for our good. Do we rest in him or do we live a life plagued by worry, by anxiety, by fear and, and frustration? And we live a life that way because we've settled for a miniature Christ who can't handle, who can't handle the storms of our lives. Let me give you one more example, one more question. Let's talk about our purpose. Passion, problems, purpose. When you think about your own life, what are you living for? And again, I like to ask it this way. When you think about your own life, not your spouse, not your children, your coworker, not your neighbor, your life. What are you living for? Why are you here? I don't just mean here in this building this morning. I mean here. What's your purpose? Who sets the course for your life? It's a good question, isn't it? Why are we here? That's one philosophers have been dating and debating about for the eons, right? Why are we here? Who sets the course for your life? What has Mark shown us as we walk through the Gospel of Mark? He's shown us a Jesus who says what? Come and follow, right, me. Come and follow me. Back in chapter 8, verse 34 of the Gospel of Mark, we read this. Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself or herself and take up his cross or her cross and what? Follow me. Maybe this is a silly question, but I'll ask it anyways. If you're following Jesus, who sets the course for your life? (laughs) Yeah, Jesus. Who sets your purpose? Jesus. Silly question, but it seems that too many in the church are setting their own course. And I have to wonder if that's because they've settled for a miniature Christ. They're treating him like he's this little dashboard Jesus who's just there, you know, to serve as the occasional co-pilot. You know, he just bobbles his head. What should we do, Jesus? This or that? You know, like he's the occasional co-pilot. Instead of realizing and being overwhelmed by the glory and the wisdom of the exalted Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father and realizing that there is no one, there's no one in the whole universe who can better set the course for your life than him. Amen? So, so there's your little self-test as we get started this morning. When you look at your life, again, not somebody else's, your life, when you look at your passion, when you look at how you deal with problems, when you think about your purpose, do you see a glorious Christ who reigns and rules over all of those areas? If not, 
Maybe you haven't really, truly seen Christ for who he is. Maybe you're settling for a miniature Christ instead of truly being captured, captivated by the real deal. Now, I raised that issue this morning, and my purpose in this is to help you see the connection between our text for this morning and where we live every day. I'm trying to help you kind of bridge that gap. I want you to see where we live and how that connects in with our text for this morning. You see, in the text for this morning, we're going to watch Jesus use the Word of God to show us a Christ that is far more glorious and far more powerful than many imagine. We're going to watch Jesus use the Word of God to show us a Christ that is far more glorious, far more powerful than many imagine. We're going to watch Jesus address a group of people who had a small view of Christ. They, they were settling for a, a miniature Christ. They had, a, they had undersold God's coming king. But Jesus challenges their small, small view. And, and I think Mark here is doing the same thing to us, his readers, through this text. He is challenging our view of Christ. Do we really understand the glory of who he is? Of who he is? Let me show you this from the text. And let's begin by reminding ourselves here of the context. Mark opens verse 35 by saying, And as Jesus taught in the temple, in the temple, And again, it's been a while since we have been together in this book. But remember, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has now come to Jerusalem. And this is his third day, according to Mark's chronology, his third day in the temple. Now, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. And again, Jerusalem is the the capital of Israel, the, the political and religious center of the nation. And there in Jerusalem was the temple. And the temple was really the heart of the nation. It was the center of their their worship and devotion to God. Well, Jesus, as he has arrived in Jerusalem, he has come to the temple. And on the first day, he comes to the temple and he assesses the temple. He simply arrives there, looks around, and then he leaves. But on the second day when he comes to the temple, he does more than assess it. Remember this? He cleansed the temple on the second day. He drove out the money changers. He drove out the merchants. And then he challenged the leadership of the temple. He said to them, this is Mark eleven seventeen. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, you leaders of Israel... You've made it a den of robbers. They, they had corrupted the temple. So Jesus challenges their leadership, their, their stewardship of Israel's heart. Then on the third day, as he returns to the temple, he begins teaching. But here's the thing. As he taught, uh, the leadership who he, who he just rebuked the day before, uh, they start pushing back. They begin to challenge Jesus with a series of questions. And this is really what fills the, the last half of chapter 11 and most of chapter 12. We have Jesus fielding question after question after question. And I want you to understand, each question, we've talked about this, but each question is aimed at challenging Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to expose Jesus, make him look like a fraud, make him look foolish in front of the people of Israel. But as we've walked through those scenes, let me ask you, did those leaders succeed in that plan? (laughs) Did did their tricky questions about theology and politics, did that rattle Jesus? that throw Jesus off of his game? Did it make him look foolish, phony? Not at all. Instead, occasion after occasion after occasion, Jesus responded in a way that it demonstrated his wisdom and his authority. And every turn, he, he exposes the foolishness of those who are questioning him and again, takes their hearts to the truth of God over and over again. And so in verse 34 of chapter 12, in the verse right before our text for this morning, we read this. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. No one dared to ask him any more questions. So after wave upon wave of question and wave upon wave of of, of amazing answers by Jesus, the challengers, they finally back down. They finally give up their attack. 
But here's the thing. That doesn't mean the questions are all done. You see, after answering all of their questions, Jesus now steps forward with a question of his own, and it's really the question of the day. The question of the day. Commentator Daniel Aiken, uh, he writes this. He says that Jesus doesn't just ask any question. He asked the most important question. He asked the question concerning the identity of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Aiken continues, I don't think it would be a stretch to say it is the question of the ages. The question of the ages. So again, after a day full of questions, Jesus asks the question of the day. And his question is aimed at challenging these men, these men who are opposing him and the crowds who are around listening, challenging their understanding of the nature of the Messiah. He's challenging their expectations of the Christ. Again, look at the text, verse 35. He asks them, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he a son? How is he a son? Notice here the first thing that Jesus takes aim at is, is what the scribes say. What the scribes say. After a day of being questioned by the the religious elite of Israel, Jesus now pushes back on some of the religious elite. He pushes back on the religious scholars. And that's what the scribes were. The scribes, they were the the experts in the law. They they prided themselves on their knowledge of the Old Testament and teaching the people their interpretations of the Old Testament. Um, But here, Jesus raises a question about their interpretation. He raises a question about their teaching. And, And what were they teaching? Look again at the text. According to the text, they were teaching that the Christ would be the son or the descendant of Israel's greatest king, King David. Now, before we look in detail at, at their teaching and this idea of, of the son of David, what that means, uh, I just want to make sure everybody understands this term, Christ. Sometimes we just use these terms like everybody knows what they mean, but not everybody does. So you often hear this term, Christ, associated with Jesus, and hear it almost in such a way that you'd be tempted to think this is Jesus' last name, Right? Jesus Christ, and he lives at such and such address, and if you're going to send something, you send it to Mr. Christ. Kind of that idea. But obviously that's not what it is. It's not, a, it's not his last name. It actually refers to a title for an office that he holds. It's like president or, or king. Now, now the word itself, the word Christ, means anointed one. It comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah, and it describes God's anointing of a person to fulfill an office or to fulfill a role. And as you read through the Old Testament, you find this term Messiah or Christ used of three groups of people. Anybody know what those three groups are? The, the, Want to guess? The prophets, the priests, and can you remember the third one? The kings. Hey, some people got it. Okay. So it's used of those three groups, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And they were all anointed to fulfill those roles, to, to serve in those offices. They were anointed with oil as a symbol of God appointing them and empowering them to function in those roles for his people. But also in the Old Testament and in Jewish expectations, this term Messiah or Christ was used to speak of a coming figure, a coming one. It was used to speak of one who would be the culmination of these offices of prophet, priest, and king, the ultimate prophet, priest, and king, the one who would come and rescue and deliver God's people. And many of the Jews in Jesus' day were watching for this one. They were watching for this coming figure. They were watching for this Christ. And the scribes taught the people that this coming figure would be a descendant of David, a son of David. And that's the issue that Jesus raises here. Again, he asks, how can the scribes say that the Christ, this one we're looking for, the one you're looking for, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, I think here's a very important question to ask. 
And I hope this question will really help us understand what Jesus' question is driving at. Were the scribes wrong? Were the scribes wrong to, to say, to teach that the Christ would be a descendant of David? You can almost take Jesus' question that way, like they were wrong. So were the scribes wrong? No, no, they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. The Old Testament clearly teaches us that the Christ would be a descendant of David. Let me show you this. You've been over there in the Gospel of Mark. Jump back to the Old Testament. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's on page 310 of my Bible. I don't know what page it is on yours, but I don't know if that'll help you out. This is where those apps on your phone or your iPad are just super easy, right? So, but paper, Bible, as some people say, real Bible or digital one wherever it is, 2 Samuel 7. And as you're turning there, let me just say that this, this text, 2 Samuel 7, is really the key, the, the launching point for this idea that the coming deliverer, the coming ruler, the Christ, would be of the line of David. Here in 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Nathan comes to David and gives him a promise. He actually gives him a covenant from the Lord. Bible scholars call this passage the Davidic covenant. So it's teaching on the Davidic covenant. Um, and so Nathan comes, gives David a promise, a covenant from the Lord. And I won't read the entire thing, but look down starting in verse 12. Here's part of the promise. David is told, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your father, so when you pass away, I will raise up your offspring after you. So one of son of David, one of David's line. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure how long? Forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, now in one sense, this promise made to David, it speaks of David's son, Solomon. He would be the one that God used to build the temple. Remember, David wanted to build it, but God said, you have too much blood on your hands. I want your son, Solomon, to build it. So his son, Solomon, would build the temple. What the text speaks about, a house for my name. But this text also looks beyond Solomon. It looks to one who will come and establish the throne of David for how long? Forever. The one whose, whose kingdom will never end. And it was this Christ, this anointed one, this son of David, the one who would establish David's throne forever, that the Jews were waiting for. Let me take you to another text. Turn over to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. This is a text we, we often hear during the Advent season at Christmas time. Um, but we often just hear verse 6, but uh, follow along as I read verses 6 and 7, Isaiah chapter 9. And that's 685 in my Bible, in case that helps you out. <laughs> Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of who? David. And over David's kingdom. To establish it 
and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. And how long? Forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, so this child that is born, to be born, this son that's to be given to us will rule on whose throne? David's throne and establish David's kingdom forever. Then, then turn over to chapter 11 of Isaiah, chapter 11. And Isaiah there again speaks of this coming one. And we could we read the whole chapter here, but, but we're just going to read the first two verses and look at how Isaiah describes this coming one. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. What's that? That's an interesting metaphor, isn't it? What's that talking about? Okay, so you have a stump. You got the picture right there, and there's a shoot coming out of the stump. And he says it's the stump of Jesse. Well, this is talking about David's line. Who was David's father? Jesse. So it's talking about David's line. It looks like it's been cut off, right? But there's going to come a, a shoot from the stump, okay? So that's the idea here. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this looks like it's been cut off, and all of a sudden it's going to be now fruitful. And what will this one be like? This shoot from the stump of Jesse. This branch from its roots. Verse 2, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So what we see here is this promised one, this one from David's line who will come and restore that line, ruling over God's people. And, and there are other texts that teach this. Uh, you don't have to turn to these, but over in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 22 to 24, God says that a day is coming, listen to what he says, when I will rescue my flock, they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set over them, listen to this, one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Then in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, Jeremiah speaks of a coming day when the people of God, listen to what he says, The people of God shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So so all of these texts taken together, and there are several other texts you can add into this, were taken together to teach that God was sending a future deliverer, a shepherd, a king, a redeemer, a Christ, who would be from the line of David, a, a son of David. But here's the thing. This isn't just something that you find taught in the Old Testament. You also see it affirmed in the New Testament. Uh, this is from the opening of the book of Romans. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. The opening of the book of Romans, Paul's sending his greeting to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, and he says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, listen to what he says, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in his holy scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant from who? David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there Paul speaks about Christ, speaks about Jesus Christ, and he emphasizes that he was of the line of David. And Paul emphasizes this again when he writes to his young protege, Timothy. Again, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, there he tells Timothy, Timothy... Remember Jesus Christ. And he's not saying, like, Timothy, you might forget about Jesus. He's not saying that. He's saying, keep this focus. Keep this central. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So this was part of the gospel message that Paul preached. He said, Timothy, focus on this. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring 
of David. So all of that to say the scribes weren't wrong. They weren't wrong in teaching that the Christ would be the son of David. The Old Testament clearly expected that, and the New Testament clearly affirmed that. But here's the thing. Here's where they were wrong, and I think this is the point that Jesus' question is driving at. Here's where they were wrong. They believed that the Christ would be, and maybe note this down, merely a son of David. They believed that the Christ would be merely a son of David. They had a small Christ complex. And this is what Jesus is aiming at exposing. Turn back over to Mark chapter 12. Turn back over to Mark chapter 12. And, and as you do that, as you're turning back to Mark 12, let me talk about the, the Jewish expectations of that time for the Christ. The expectations of, of most of the Jews in Jesus' day, and, and we've watched even the disciples as we walk through the Gospel of Mark, we've watched even the disciples struggle with this. Their expectation was that the Messiah, this coming Christ, would be merely a human deliverer. Merely a human deliverer. They, they were looking for another king, another ruler, just like who? Like David. They were looking for one like David. They were longing for someone to come and bring the security and the prosperity that they had known under David's reign. And so when the scribes taught that this, about this coming rescuer, this coming Christ, they would be a descendant of David, they were calling people to look for someone who was merely a, a human political and military leader. They were calling them to look for a human, another David, right? Another one like David. And this teaching, it really appealed to a lot of the Jews in the day. As we've talked about in the past, the nation of Israel during that time, uh, they were uh, a subjugated nation. They were under Roman rule and occupation. So when the Romans said jump, the Jews were expected to say what? (laughs) How high? So they were under Roman occupation. Rome was the boss, and Rome ruled with an iron fist. And the Jews resented this. They wanted their freedom. They, They wanted their autonomy. And so they wanted one like David who would come and give them that. Get rid of the Romans. That's what they were looking for. Another human military political leader. But here's the thing. God's plan for the Christ was so much bigger than dealing with just Roman occupation. God's plan for the Christ was so much bigger. God's plan was bigger than just mere political change and some military might. God's plan for the Christ was to change everything. To change everything. Not just who ruled over some country there in the Middle East. And so Jesus asks a question, and he quotes a text aimed at correcting this small Christ complex. He asks a question and quotes a text aimed at challenging their understanding of the very nature of the Messiah. Look again at our text. Again, Jesus raises the question, verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, uh, or that the Christ is the son of David, or, or merely the son of David? And then in verse 36, Jesus introduces another text into the discussion. And look at it. He, he doesn't quote from 2 Samuel 7. He doesn't quote from Isaiah 9. He doesn't quote from the text that I mentioned earlier. He brings a new text into the discussion. He quotes to them from a portion of Psalm 110, a text that he aims directly at their Christ is merely a descendant of David teaching. Look at the quote. The Lord said to my Lord, what? What does it say? Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, now in order to understand this quote properly and the point that Jesus is drawing from this quote, we need to ask some questions. First question is this. Who is speaking? Who is the one saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand? Who's the one who's saying in the psalm, my Lord? Okay, it's an easy one, right? That's a very easy one to answer because Jesus tells us, right? He introduces the quote by saying there in verse 36, what does he say? David himself, right? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared. So, so David is the speaker in this quote. He is the writer of Psalm 110. 
And not only is he the writer, but Jesus says it was the Holy Spirit, right, who led David to write this. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through David as David prophetically details the glory of this one that he's describing as my Lord. So that's the first question. Who's the speaker? Who's talking? David. Another question is, who is David speaking about? When he says, my Lord, who is that? Okay, again, according to Jesus, David is speaking about the Christ, right? That's why Jesus brings this text into the discussion. And most of the Jews in in Jesus' day viewed this text, Psalm 110, as a messianic text. And here's the thing. Jesus says that this text is talking about the Messiah, and the rest of the New Testament follows his example. The rest of the New Testament interprets this text, Psalm 110, as referring to the Messiah. Here's an interesting thing I came about as I was studying through this week. Guess what Old Testament text is the most quoted and alluded to text in the New Testament? Guess what Old Testament text is quoted more than any other Old Testament text in the New Testament? Can you guess? Psalm 110. Yeah, the one that we're talking about right here. So the New Testament writers quote this particular text more than any other Old Testament text. They continually, and again, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, show us that the central character of Psalm 110 is none other than the Messiah. So here, Jesus quotes a text in which David is speaking, and he's speaking about the Messiah, and he calls the Messiah his descendant. We've talked about that. The Christ is going to be the descendant of David. He calls his descendant my Lord. And here's the thing. This was not the common practice. This was not the common practice. What David is doing in this psalm, calling his descendant his Lord, was very, very unusual. As commentator James Brooks explains, listen to this. In ancient Israelite society, fathers did not refer to their sons or even more distant descendants, so grandsons or others down their line, as Lord. They didn't do it that way. They didn't do it that way. Actually, just the opposite was true. You see, what would be normal, what would be expected, was that the descendant would always be seen as the inferior, would always be seen as less than their forefathers. And they viewed things this way because the forefather was always seen as the source. Maybe you remember this with uh, Bill Cosby, right? He would say, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world, right? So the father was always seen as the source. So he was always seen as superior. And that's the way the Jews approached things. But here's the thing. That's not what's going on here in Psalm 110. There David is addressing the Christ, his descendant, and he says what? My Lord. He addresses this one as his superior. And Jesus' point to these guys that are listening to him, his point is that that should have surprised everyone. That was not what you did. That should have surprised everyone. It should have caused everyone. And as you study the word of God and you come across things like this that cause you to slow down, guess what you should do? Slow down. Ask questions. It should have caused everyone to slow down and ask questions about the nature of this one that David, by the Holy Spirit, describes as my Lord. But here's the thing. They hadn't done that. They hadn't done that. They'd simply tried to plug the Christ into their expectations, and they'd ended up with a limited Christ. So Jesus points them to a picture of a Christ far greater than their expectations. He points them to Psalm 110, which gives a picture of an anointed one, not merely like David, but one greater than David. Take a moment and turn over there. Turn over to Psalm 110. Let me just show you this text. It's a great text. And again, it's most quoted Old Testament text and the New Testament. So a pretty important passage. But let me just give, help you get a better understanding of the picture that this psalm paints. Look at what the psalm says. 
Look at what David wants us to see. Psalm 110, 606, page 606 in my Bible. First, David wants us to see one far greater than himself. He says, and this is what Jesus quotes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David, here by the Holy Spirit, he sees one far exalted above himself. David, who is an earthly king at this time, right? Great empire he is ruling over. David, an earthly king, sees the installation of the divine king, one who is seated above all earthly rule and power. And this cosmic king that he sees is also a cosmic conqueror. Look at This is the one who is seated at the right hand, which is a position of power, and, and will have all of his enemies put where? Under his feet. Under his feet. What does that mean? I came across this for commentator Ben Witherington. Listen to what he says. The image of enemies being put under his feet is that of a victor placing his foot on the neck of the conquered. Placing his foot on the neck of the conquered. He, he can, it continues, This is not an uncommon ancient Near Eastern gesture to indicate total domination on the one hand, the guy with the foot is in total domination, and total capitulation and submission on the other. You're in total capitulation and submission when the foot is on your neck. And here's the thing. This isn't just total dominion over one nation or one group of people, but this is domination, dominion over all. David looks and he sees a ruler of all. Look at verse 2. The Lord, or Yahweh, sends forth, from, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, and he says what? Rule. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And this one does rule. Look down at verses 5 to 7 of Psalm 110. The Lord, this cosmic king, is at your right hand. And what will he do? He will shatter the kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And that picture of lifting up his head is that idea of of victory, of of absolute victory. And and as you read through that passage, it should remind you of another psalm, Psalm Psalm 2. Um, there in Psalm 2, a psalm that's very closely related to this. We have this picture. Don't turn there. Just listen to it. The psalmist there, Psalm 2, writes, I will tell of the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Then we read this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or, or do homage, pay homage to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Again, this is a picture of the coming cosmic king, the sovereign over the whole earth, the one who is a descendant of David, but at the same time, far greater than David. And here in Psalm 110, David continues. Look at this. He tells of this one who, who he, in whom he sees uh, the joy of his people, the one in whom the people will rejoice. Look at verse 3. He says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. So the idea is they're all worshiping in the day of your power. From, from the womb of the morning, that is from the east, the dew of your youth will be yours. In other words, they're going to delight in you this one that's coming. They're going to join with you in all the vigor of their youth. That's the idea. The idea is that this one that David sees, this one he calls my Lord, he's going to be the refreshment, the one who refreshes his people. And look what David says next here. This is just fascinating. David says that this one that he sees, this one he calls my Lord, will be a priest king. 
Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest how long? Forever. After the order of who? Melchizedek. Now, remember Melchizedek from Genesis? He was the priest king of Salem, the one to whom Abraham himself gave offerings. And normally in the nation of Israel, the offices of king and priest were separate, right? You had the priest from the tribe of Levi and the rulers of the kings from the tribe of Judah. But David looks and he sees this cosmic king who's going to unite both offices into one. He, he will rule over and minister to the people. So David here sees one who's truly unique. One who's truly unique. He sees one who is transcendent, one who is sovereign, one who is powerful, this cosmic priest king, the one who is the delight and the refreshment of his people, and the one to whom David himself surrenders allegiance and adoration. David doesn't just see one more like himself, does he? David sees one who stands gloriously above him. And that's what Jesus wants his hearers to see. That's what Jesus wants us here to see. That's why he ends with this riddle-like question. Go ahead and turn back to Mark chapter 12, and we'll start to wrap this up. After quoting to them from Psalm 110, then Jesus asks this question. He says, David, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? How is he his son? And again, Jesus is not arguing that the Messiah isn't a descendant of David. That's not what he's arguing. He is simply pushing back on these Jews' limited expectations of the Messiah. He's calling them to recognize that the Messiah comes from a greater source than just mere human ancestry. The Messiah comes from a greater source than just mere human ancestry. If he was simply just a son of David, just one more in David's line, there would be no reason for David to call him Lord. There'd be no reason for David to call him Lord. And he most definitely wouldn't look like the figure that we see there in Psalm 110. But the Messiah, here's the point, the Messiah, Jesus, is more. He's not simply the son of David. He's also the son of who? The son of God. This one isn't just the son of David. He's the son of God. That's why David sees him there in Psalm 110. That's why David sees him and addresses him the way that he does. David, by the Holy Spirit, beholds none other than the son of God, ruling the cosmos, conquering his enemies, and blessing the people of God. And so David bows to him and says, my Lord, my Lord. And that's what Jesus' hearers need to realize. His question calls them to realize their limited expectations and then recognize who they're dealing with. They're not dealing with a mini-Christ. They're not dealing with a dashboard Jesus. Standing before them that day in the temple was none other than the Son of God, the cosmic king the ruler of all, the one whom David himself, David, who, I mean, they, they would glory in David, but David himself calls him Lord. Standing before them was the one who would come to bring the kingdom of God, who would die and raise up again, who would defeat sin and death, the one who would ascend into heaven, be seated at the right hand of the Father, and come again to establish his glorious kingdom forever. That's the one who was standing right in front of them. But here's the thing. They were missing it. They were missing it. And, and many continued to miss it, because their Christ, their view of Christ, was too small. Their view of Christ was too small. So as I close, let me ask the question, what about us? What about our understanding of Jesus, our expectations of Jesus? Let me just ask this question. Is our Christ too small? Is your Christ too small? Our Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of God, the Christ. Amen? 
the cosmic king, the ruler over everything. He is our priest king, the one with power enough for any problem and grace enough for any burden. But do we see him that way? Do we run to him that way? Do we bow before him that way? Let me encourage you to take some time this week, take some time today, and really think about your, your passion. Think about what you're glorying in. Are you glorying in Christ? Are you delighting? I mean, are you delighting in, in your Savior and your righteousness? Let me ask this question. Where would we be without Christ? Do you ever stop and really think about that one? It really should shake us to our core if we're honest and we really think about that. Where would we be without Christ? We'd still be dead in our sins and trespasses, amen? We would still be under the condemnation and wrath of God. But Jesus, but Jesus, through his death on the cross, he took our sins upon himself. He took the wrath that those sins deserved and he suffered. He suffered our death. He suffered our condemnation and he defeated our sin and our death. Amen? He rose again the third day as the conqueror, as our rescue, as our deliverer from our sin and our death. So let me ask you, what, what is more glorious, more boastworthy, more worthy of delight than that? I mean, a thousand years from now, when you're in eternity, what do you think you're going to be boasting in? Your shoe collection? Your sports teams? What are you going to be boasting in? So let me ask you now. Think about it now. Where would we be without Christ? What is, think about your passion this week. Think about your passion today. What are you boasting in? What are you, what are you glorying in? What are you looking to for your satisfaction? Take some time this week and, and look at your problems. I don't say just list them and moan about them. Ask yourself the question, how are you handling them? Are you overwhelmed by them? H- have you become burdened and discouraged by them? Do you realize that you have a king who has conquered your greatest problem? You and I were born outside of the kingdom of God, but now by faith in Jesus Christ, we are the sons and the daughters of God. If we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, and we have, Colossians 1 says we have, if that problem has been overcome, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son, if that is true, why do we fear that Christ can't handle the everyday problems of our lives? Don't forget these words of the apostle Peter. Remember this 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. And lastly, take some time this week and really think about your purpose. And again, just look at your life. Think about your purpose. And, and let me ask you a question this way. Let me pose this question to yourself. Do you see Christ the way David saw him? Again, David calls him what? My, what? My Lord. So let me ask you, do you? Do you? Do you live that way? Do you live as one who has seen the glory of Christ, the cosmic king, and and you joyfully surrender your life to that one? My prayer is that you do. My prayer is that you do. My prayer is that that we all do more and more each day, that that together we we learn to leave behind our, our miniature Christs, our dashboard Jesuses, and find our joy, our peace, and our purpose in the real deal. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your love for us is matchless. 
you who had every right to condemn us and cast us away for our sin, our rebellion against you. You, in your great love and mercy, you gave instead of judging us. You gave in mercy. You gave us your son to be our savior. And I pray that by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the truth of the word of God, we would come to see him more and more for who he truly is. We would see the glory of Christ and it would so captivate our hearts, so so dominate our lives that all our passions, all our problems, all our purpose find that center in him. That nothing would thrill us more than speaking about Jesus, than thinking about Jesus, than singing about Jesus, than meditating on the glory of Jesus. That all our problems would just pale in comparison to what our Jesus has done for us. And when we're tempted to worry and fret about the things of our life, we would look again and see Jesus seated at the right hand, sovereign, transcendent over all, with more than enough power, more than enough wisdom for whatever comes into our day. And I pray for all of my brothers and sisters Help us to really see our purpose, our life centered in Christ, that we are the followers of Jesus and our lives reveal that. These things we pray in his name. Amen.